You're listening to The Dirt on the Past, a show on history and archaeology and why it matters today. You can find us on the Extreme History Project website and also on kgvm.org. Thanks for listening. Welcome to The Dirt on the Past from the Extreme History Project and KGVM Community Radio. Whether digging up a site or dusting off the archives, we bring you some of the most fascinating and cutting-edge research in history and archaeology and discuss why it matters today. Join me, Nancy Mahoney, alongside co-host Crystal Alegria, as we converse with anthropologists, archaeologists, and historians about how they bring the past alive. Welcome to this week's edition of the show. I'm Nancy. And I'm Crystal. And we are the co-hosts of The Dirt on the Past. This week, we are at the Extreme History Headquarters speaking in person, what a treat, with Scott Carpenter. We're excited to talk with Scott about a multitude of topics um, about historic preservation and archaeology. But before we introduce Scott, Crystal, I want to catch up with you. How was your week? Oh, it was a wonderful week, Nancy. We had a great time. We started our walking tours. Oh, officially last, started Officially now. started Fantastic. our walking tours this, this last weekend. So that it's so much fun to get going again, especially since we really didn't do the walking tours last summer. So yeah, It's so been over a year then. It's been over a year. So we're so excited. And all the tour guides are back in and doing tours. And so it was great to get to work with all of them again. And, you know, just really in the last week or so, we've been fine-tuning the tours for their debuts this weekend. So it's been fun to walk the streets of Bozeman again with all our walking tour guides and kind of update them and, and them, you know, update me about what they've learned about their tours over the course of the last year and, and just really um, get to do history with people again, you know, I know that's, that's got to feel really good. What are, what are the tour names again? So we're running this summer, we're running murders, madams and mediums, which is of course our, our most popular tour, and then we are running our popular cemetery tour. We're also running a red light district tour, which is popular as well. And this is new this year? That's new. It was new two years ago. Okay. So, but kind of, you know, kind of new this still, year still. Still one of the newer ones. Yeah, yeah, one of the newer ones. And then we ran our uh, Main Street tour, which our intern Maggie did beautifully so she started um, working as a tour guide for us this weekend as well and that's exciting yeah so we've been working with her on doing that tour for the past month or so and was she nervous she was extremely nervous Um, poor Maggie she was really nervous but she did a wonderful job and everyone loved it that's great yeah that's great so I got good reviews on her tour so she's excited to keep doing it and she's in between, she just finished with a degree in history, and now she's going to be going to graduate school next fall. So this is kind of her interim. Wow. So, well, yeah, it's exciting. It's and you guys had beautiful weather the whole we weekend. Did. We finally had um, spring and summer all at once come yeah. to Bozeman. So yeah. that must have been nice for the tours. It was great. It was great. No rain. rain. No rain in sight this last weekend. So that was that really helped. Awesome. What about you, Nancy? Yeah, it was gorgeous, and I was super glad um, to not actually have to be in the shop because it was flooded with tourists, so we had Mm -hmm. a lot of people, which was great, a lot of people here for Memorial Day. 
Um, it was my 20th wedding anniversary last week. Mm. So um, Happy anniversary. That's a big milestone. Didn't you have yours pretty recently? We did. Yeah, we had our anniversary uh, mid-May. Yeah. May 16th, okay. which was 23 for us. So, okay, yeah. wow. You are ahead of us. Yeah. Well, we were happy to make it to second decade, and um, mm. I celebrated it alone. Since I was just my husband's say, in but Columbia. Your, your husband is <laughs> nowhere even close to Bozeman. No, so. no. That's probably good. the best way for us. Yeah. We're both doing what we need to do. We'll celebrate when we when we head off to Italy. So that's good. Um, But yeah, so um, I had a lot of time to get back outside and hike with my dogs. We have all the elk, which had just dropped all their new babies that are just over the ridge from where my house is. So that was super fun. And we're hiring some new folks at the store. And then everybody's high school graduations are coming up this next weekend. So you and I don't have one, but we certainly know a lot of people. I know I do, and I'm sure yeah. you do too. We have a lot of friends with. So this coming up weekend, there'll be a lot of graduation parties, and that's always fun too. Yeah, so. it makes me think though of, you know, our kids both graduate. We had graduates last year yeah. from high school, and now we have a year off. But then we both have kids who are graduating next yeah. year. So I'm like, okay, I got to prep for next year already. I've got to start thinking I've about it. Pre- and I think the announcements get more elaborate every year yeah. as they go out. But at least this year, it'll be a real graduation unlike last year which was yeah a little disappointing but it still happened um yeah so um so we should probably turn back to our guests we should yeah so so scott we're excited to have you with us today welcome thank you for inviting me great to be here we want to start by telling our listeners a little bit about you. Um, so Scott Carpenter is, I believe you're the founder and the owner of Inter-Resources Planning, Inc. Correct. Here in Bozeman. So you're the senior archaeologist and cultural resources planner there. And you have more than 45 years of professional experience in the fields of archaeology, history, architectural history, cultural ecology, ethnography, we're still going here, tribal consultations and historic preservation planning. So a really impressive array of related things, but not everybody else I don't think has always been able over their career to to really deal with all of those things. So Scott, I think you have a really unique and fascinating career. Um, Scott received his BA in anthropology with a specialization in North American archaeology from the University of Colorado and his master's in museum studies with a focus in American history, historical archaeology, and historic preservation from the George Washington University in Washington, D.C., which is where I also received my master's degree. Scott's current research interests include cultural ecology, prehistoric site settlement patterns, stone tool technologies, historic architecture and construction technologies, and historic preservation. Scott has worked for the Smithsonian, for the National Park Service, um, in both places as a research archaeologist and as a cultural resources manager for over 20 years, including 15 years at Yosemite National Park as the chief of cultural resources. He's published and edited several hundred project reports, technical studies, and scholarly publication, and has worked also on projects throughout other parts of the United States, Russia, and China. Scott, it's great to have you here. Thanks. And I also do windows. (laughs) 
huge bonus. All that and windows, Especially too. those dirty, historic windows. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, Scott, we often like to start off by asking our guests um, how they became interested in history and archaeology and what really they think might have set them on this path that ended up being a career for them. Yeah. Well, I think I'm uh, probably one of those classic stories of... Uh, a uh, young boy in the, about the fourth grade finally realizing the difference between searching for dinosaurs and archaeology <laughs> and that there is a difference. And um, uh, friends of my parents were in graduate school at the University of Colorado at the time. And I kind of tagged along on, on a few field trips, an hour here, an hour there. And they were fortunate to go to the um, uh, Nubian project the University of Colorado did. Oh wow! And uh, in the 1960s, and of course they sent me postcards about once a week, and um, and then when they came back, uh, came to my school and gave lectures. And then from then wow. on, I, I worked with Dr. Buckles uh, in the field. I would hold the dumb end of a tape on site surveys, and then by the time I was in high school, I was recording sites with him and analyzing artifacts. And oh. So it was just kind of a natural progression right into college at that Fantastic. time. Fantastic, yeah. yeah. So you just right away had a, had an interest yeah. and kind of knew. What did your parents think? Did they know this was... I mean, I guess they had friends who were doing it, so they felt yeah. that you could have Yeah, I guess, yeah, we've never really talked about it. I think they just assumed that that would occur as well. Yeah. They, it yeah. was kind of yeah. a natural progression from what you were doing, yeah. you know. They weren't like yeah. business school, lawyer, doctor. They no, my dad uh, was a chemist, so he was very analytical. We worked together on a few uh, ancillary projects where he would provide chemical support for soil studies, mass spectrometry oh, studies, and things yeah. like that. So, yeah, he was always interested in that. Nice. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. Well, you're not the first one of our guests who has come to archaeology that way. We've had a few people say that they got interested and just started working on projects in high school. So I mm. think that's great. You know, it's great to get kids interested at that early age, yeah. get them hooked, and then they have no other choice. But then Well, and go, also let oh, them yeah. know about some of the drawbacks and challenges. I yeah. think a lot of adults get into archaeology by way of a novel, Agatha Christie, or um, uh, watching on television, and then by the time they're 25, 30 years old, they end up and outside and realize, you know, I'm really not cut out for doing all this. Whereas I think if you get into it early, you kind of stay with it longer. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You and, know what to expect. Right. Yeah. And, but, you know, that, that point about, you know, holding the end of the tape and then progressing, I, there's it's an easy place that if you have an interested kid to give them something to do, whether mm-hmm. they're helping with the screens, whether they're doing some things, there's ways for them to be in the field and to feel useful and like that they're doing some real science and field work. So I think that um, it is a nice way if someone's inclined that way. And I just think it's way more fascinating than dinosaurs, but that's, mm-hmm. my, <laughs> that's my bias. Personal. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, Scott, you know, on this podcast, we've talked a lot about the Anzic site, and I know you've worked a lot around the history of the Anzic site as well during your career. So you know all about it and could probably speak for an hour on the Anzic site alone. But I want to talk a little bit about a different cache site that you've been personally involved with that was discovered very close to where the Anzic site was discovered in the 1960s. So this is another cache site, and I'll have you explain exactly what that means here in a minute. But this was another cache site that was discovered uh, just a few years ago near Livingston, Montana, which is about 30 miles from where 
well, probably not even that, from where the ANZIC site was located. Of course, the time periods were very different of these two cache sites. But I, I love your research into this into this archaeological site that was a cache. And I just wanted you to talk a little bit about uh, what a cache site is and what this one looked like, what the time frame for it was, and kind of your interpretation of of this of this site. So, sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, informally known as the Yearling Springs site and uh, near Livingston. And I think our uh, experience and work with it wouldn't have come about if it hadn't been for extreme history. I'm not sure if you remember that. I but, do. Uh, okay, good. Um, uh, at least you didn't bribe me to bring this point I up. But I didn't. It's one of those classic stories. And, of course, being an archaeologist, you always get called, especially on a 4th of July weekend, which that ended up being. Uh, gee, I found some bones in my backyard, and can you come and look at it, and all those kind of stuff. And, and they end up being dog bones or soup bones from a few years back, and nothing too excited. But um, but a um, an individual who was with the Project Archaeology program, and she was an elementary school teacher. Yeah, uh, in Livingston. In Livingston, had, was walking her dog, and they were kind of being harassed by a coyote nearby. So they dropped down into this drainage. And she looked on the ground, and there are these large pieces of, large medium pieces of um, obsidian, volcanic glass, black volcanic glass. And she commented to me later that normally she would have never thought anything about that, you know. But because she knew about obsidian and where archaeological sites would be and everything else, she thought, wow, this is really strange. And, um, and of course, I think she called you, and then you called uh, Dr. Jack Fisher and myself, and, yeah. and it sounded something better than just old soup bones in one's backyard, so we kind of jumped on it, and, and um, we had a picture in our mind of what we might see when we got out there, you know, a few flakes of obsidian, which in our experience is fairly common, but we get out there, and one of them was larger than a large dinner plate. Wow. Uh, yeah. And you could see it from probably 60, 70 feet away. And they were all sitting on top of the grass, which was really interesting. And it, it, it was a, a, a cut of an old ranch road, not even a, it's probably a two-track road, but a small cut that had, as the snow melted, the mud just sloughed out. And these artifacts spilled out from the, from the ground and slid across the grass and um, and they still were coated with red ochre, which was a very unique um, situation. So Jack and I and Philip Fisher, uh, Jack's son, who's carrying on the torch, um, and various other people, we worked on that site for better part of two years. The really interesting thing about that site, being a cache, which is a a pla- uh, place, it's the French French word. Um, uh, for collecting things in one place. So a, a powder cache for trappers or hunters would be gunpowder cache in one, or a food cache or something. So they're usually um, single, not necessarily single event, but single purpose locations. So as opposed to doing an archaeological excavation of a large site uh, that is a ceremonial site, a habitation site, a tool production site, a cooking site, a food processing site, all these different things together, which gets confusing because all of them are happening together. This is just one little thing 
activity that, that comprises that site. So it's the, like a storage site yeah, in some ways that right, probably right. somebody intended to come back to. Is that presumably? Yeah, yeah. And we, we will never really know, but we were able to do work and we, we actually excavated down and found some of the obsidian pieces uh, still in place uh, in their original context and a small pit that was lined with red ochre. And then in excavating this grass layer where these obsidian flakes were observed on top of the new grass because they weeks ago just slid across They just kind of slid out. Yeah, okay. we found some in the sod layer. So this had slid out once before oh. about 20, 25 years but prior. But nobody had seen it. Nobody had seen it. They wow. got grass grew up around it. So then they it, just got covered Thank goodness up. you yeah. went ahead and tested it. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's yeah. easily one of those things yeah. that someone might have said, oh, we found the pit, you know, yeah. and moved on. So we found uh, upwards of, a, I think it was a total of 98 fragments of obsidian. They all okay. came from Obsidian Cliff in um, Yellowstone National Park. And of course, this gets back to some of our discussions, too, that, that we talk about with extreme history, is that people always look for the, the exact place that someone was. Not the history of the whole story, mm-hmm. but w- mm-hmm. where did George Washington sleep or where did... Uh, the Lewis and Clark people, where where are their footprints in the earth, and and um, and of course when we started on the project, a few other people, the rancher and a few other people were because they knew about Anzic, they wanted this to be as old as Anzic, so right. older is better, yeah. and and yet it's it's not. Uh, I mean, old is great, but um, and speaking from somebody my age, uh, <laughs> I like to think it's a little bit, uh, yeah. you know, good. <laughs> but something, something but there are right. some right. unique good. things good. that yeah. happened 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago. So it ended up that this site, we did some special analyses of of the soils and other things and found out that the site was about 3,000 years old. So not as old as ANSIC, but again... Still very old. Yeah. yeah. And and then trying to figure out why were those things casted. There were no finished tools, no... Uh, detritus or debitage from f- making other tools. They were just these large preforms and blanks that could have been used. So when and you they say could have been preforms t- and blanks, you actually mean people took hunks of obsidian from obsidian cliff, did some basic shaping right. so that they would have served sort of as a as a, a core or a shape that later you could take some off exactly. of the tools from. Yeah. Okay, just so Very people understand. Yeah. So those those were taken. Someone carried them. I don't know how much right. all this weighed. Well, it's about, it's about, it was about 35 pounds. 35 okay. pounds that was yeah. taken. So maybe one trip, two trips, two people, and one how, person. And how many miles to Obsidian Cliff, roughly? Uh, it's about uh, straight line distance. It's probably about uh, 70 miles. Yeah. Okay. And maybe could have been on the river for some of it. Yeah, or, right, okay. right. Yeah. So it could have been brought over years. It could have been kind of a checkout place. It could have been a um, ceremonial place that these were really important for blessing for hunting. Uh, we just we just right. don't know because. And um, do you think that's maybe why the ochre was within it as well? Because you said they were all covered with ochre. Yeah, and they were in an ochre-lined pit. Yeah. Ochre has been a very it's a, a hematite or iron oxide, and it occurs naturally many places around the globe. And um, it's been traced to archaeological sites throughout the world, including South Africa, going back hundreds of thousands of years. It's used for medicinal purposes and also for painting, rock art, uh, painting on the skin, tattoos, things like that. Um, so it, you know, we conjectured that maybe it was um, 
a special place and maybe like flagging tape today. Oh, go to that place just mm-hmm. above the river along that creek and you'll see this red stuff in the soil. Dig down and you'll take what you need. Right. Uh, or it was a ceremonial blessing. And, you know, we will never know that part of the story. Right. You know, and you and you say in your article that you wrote about it is maybe our protection even. Yeah. You know, maybe that ochre was used as a protection for these pieces so they would be there the next time the yeah. person came to get yeah. them or yeah so when people talk about anzic and think about anzic they know that there was also a large cache of artifacts um and it was it was a different cache which i want to get to in a second but there were also human remains mm-hmm. um subsequently all that has been dated there was also some ochre involved in, in that cache but it was a large amount of stone tools some obsidian but it wasn't all obsidian like right. this so if you hadn't had the ability to, to date, looking at just the, the artifacts themselves that you found, what is the difference between how the artifacts in the Anzic site look and what, what's contained in that cache versus what these ones looked like? Right. Well, the, the, most of the artifacts at the Anzic site uh, were finished artifacts, and they were from the Clovis period. Generally, obsidian in this area of the world, or this area of the Rocky Mountains, was not used as much for tools, stone tools, until the last few thousand years. During Prior, the Clovis period, they right. weren't. Right. Uh, occasionally, right. you will but find it those in Wyoming, Colorado. It was not the main preferred. Okay. Yeah, that there I, were so many other types of material that was being used, and we don't know yeah. why that was. Um, but they were finished tools. These um, now obsidian. We can understand how old the artifacts are by doing obsidian hydration dating, where obsidian, being a glass, absorbs molecular moisture, and we can actually look at it under a microscope and and determine a relative time period that has elapsed since that artifact was made. Uh, and with the chert and other types of stone at Ansig site, you could not date just finding an artifact. So we we did have that because of the obsidian. Then we also used another technique called, uh, this is a $1 million word, um, optically stimulated luminescence dating of this soils. This is good. It makes us sound really sciencey. Right, right. So, yeah, <laughs> well, and I think it's because... If it didn't have that big name, we wouldn't pay thousands of dollars to have the analysis done. Right, it would only exactly. be $30. But anyway, <laughs> OSL dating, we could date the soil layers around it. And we were hoping to find carbon, mm-hmm. but there wasn't any carbon to do carbon-14. And you can't really do much. Uh, um, ochre is so ubiquitous mm-hmm. that it's hard to really tell. To source it that. or something. But our OSL dating and the obsidian dating... Uh, were fairly close, which is good to know because an artifact, these preforms could have made been made 3,000 years ago and deposited in Gardner. Right. And then someone a th- 500 years ago picked them up in Gardner and brought 35 pounds of obsidian to Livingston and buried them with ochre. But because the dates are really close to the same, we know it was one event or, okay. or a series yeah. of events. You know, they might yeah. have been over a, a couple of years or something like that. But within wow. one person's lifetime. Yeah, and like we even right. did analyses of um, uh, bagware. If you take a lot of these big pieces and small pieces, wow. and 35 pounds of rock on your back for 50, 60 miles is quite an effort, and they're banging around and things like that, you would find a lot of extra flaking of this glass uh, along the edges. 
and there was very little of it. Mm. So were they each individually wrapped in deer skin? Right, right. Or were they carried by two different people? Or, you know, and so um, uh, uh, Philip Fisher at the time uh, made some similar artifacts out of stone that was never used prehistorically and he put them in a pack and he carried them for x number of miles oh, and then he photographed some experimental them. archaeology yeah, he photographed That's them great. ahead of time Fantastic. and then and then tried to figure out what the difference was yeah. and, and it appears as though there's very little what we call bag wear oh, okay. uh, or transport wear now it, it could be that each artifact was carried by one person right. which would mean a very much very different type of scenario right right yeah yeah. Oh, I love kind of playing with all of that. Now, this is not the only cache site in North America mm-hmm. that contains artifacts and or obsidian artifacts. Can you tell us a little bit about where else we find them and how this compares to some of them? Yeah, there's some large and some small. There are some that are found in association with other archaeological sites. This, by the very nature of the the physical erosion of the site and sliding down the hill of these large pieces, someone would have never found this site. As soon as the grass grew in one more season, these artifacts would have been reburied. Uh, Because there's no... The nearest recorded archaeological site is perhaps uh, a quarter to a half mile away. So rarely do we work on a single large site and then have the the good fortune to be able to look a quarter mile away at every square inch and excavate to see what is buried. Basically, that cache was smaller than the size of this table. Right. So even if we were on a site nearby, you know, you could look right to the right of this table and you could look right to the left and not find anything. And only right where, if you looked right where the artifacts were, is the only way that you could have found them. Yeah. This is what's always so fascinating to me about what might still be out there. I love stories like this. I know. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, if Robin hadn't been, if if that coyote hadn't pushed her over, that was not her normal route for walking. So she probably would have never even seen these artifacts. And so Robin Lubbock is a teacher in Livingston, and she's the one who kind of came across these artifacts. And she had done a lot of work with um, project archaeology, but also with extreme history and had gone to some trainings and different things. So she she did have that eye for artifacts. Mm-hmm. She, um, you know, and like you said, if if she hadn't. And we, she knew who to call. Yeah, you know, she knew. Is, yeah. So but the funny thing about it is I got a call. I got the call from Robin about when she was out at the site looking at these big obsidian pieces on the grass. And I was in a dressing room in TJ Maxx. <laughs> <laughs> And I saw it was Robin calling, so I, you know, I picked up as I was put, you know, putting on, trying on some clothes, and and she's like, Crystal, there's these huge obsidian artifacts on the ground, and I don't know where they came from, but you, I've got to send you some pictures of them. So I said, okay, we'll send them, you know. And so she forwarded me these pictures, and I was just blown away because they're huge, and they're those beautiful obsidian, black obsidian. Mm-hmm. And so I, I just said, well, Robin, where are you? And how did you find these? And she kind of gave me yeah. the scenario. And she, I said, well, how many are there? And she says, well, I see at least 20. Yeah. And there and I was, 22 at wow. the beginning. Yeah. I was just stunned. Right. I couldn't believe it. And I, I, I said, well, okay, well, let me call Scott Carpenter. I think I had her call you first. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and, and maybe then Jack right away but um you're like let me get dressed yeah let me put my pants on (laughs) 
And so then I remember forwarding you the the pictures that she had forwarded me, and so it was so amazing. Wow. But but then um, you know, she, but she was involved in it as you know, of course, was the landowner the whole time, mm-hmm. and right. and the landowners were very um, excited about mm-hmm. this, and and were very um, you know. A, a huge part of this project yeah. the whole time, as I remember as well. So it was really a neat. Yeah, it's project definitely a, a project that was born out of coincidence. Yeah, and, mm-hmm. yeah. And just being at the right place at the right time, and every step of the way of doing analysis. And and we should bring up, and I I don't want to read anything into the whole thing, but uh, Robin's husband's name is Cash. Oh, that's right. So, well, uh, there you, you go. Know, yeah, whatever. So. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I love thinking about the way people were using the landscape. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, we know there are caches from Clovis era, which is, you know, 10,000, 12,000 years ago. And then we're talking, you know, this one is 3,000. So people continued to use the landscape that way and yeah. where they'd go and get these raw materials. I mean, it's it's so interesting to think about what ways in which we document how people moved and used all the different resources. And people are geocaching today. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. God knows what else they're caching right, out there right, these right, days, right? right? So Pandemic times. One more question too, Scott. You know, you did some analysis of the the fats or the lipids that were found. Right. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, a lot of times uh, there's ethnographic uh, documentation of the use of ochre for di- for different things, uh, for paint, for rock art, for paint on hides and decorative purposes, uh, tools, and um, and also for face paints. And there's a lot of accounts of mixture of animal fats with the ochre. Uh, otherwise, it's kind of a dusty, chalky material, which if you're uh, drawing a hopscotch board on your sidewalk or putting a little bit of... Uh, coloring on your face, uh, ochre will do fine for a, a little while, but it, the dust is um, uh, uh, it, it succumbs to a lot of moisture and and even the wind and things like that. So by adding grease to it, it, it will make it, it. It'll be like a, well, it's even like a binder because like right, for, binder, for right. rock art and cave paintings and Lipstick, probably early body painting. Yeah, you would be colors, in, right, right. You would be mixing it with fats and right, oils. Right. Um, so you found that then right. in with this ochre. So it was yeah. really intentional to line the pit, didn't just blow in from somewhere. Well, there yeah. was a real question, too. Uh, so we did um, uh, both starch and to look for plant substances and then uh, blood trace blood analysis of the material. And we found uh, percentages of bear and uh, trout or salmonid. So it could have been salmon or, or, or trout. Uh, so it was a mixture of fish, uh, bear, and then some deer. Mm-hmm. Now the question was: Was this all wrapped in a deerskin bag, and then buried into the ochre, and and then the deerskin um, deteriorated over time? So we'll never know for sure. Oh, I see. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And what do you think about the bear? Do you think that that the ochre was mixed with bear? Probably bear grease. Bear grease. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And the yeah, that's interesting. And the trout, you know, how does that yeah. how does that come into this? It, unless it was just within. Yeah. And again, that, with without without within being there, way. we will never know. Yeah. But was there a you know one extreme story is that the um, the recipe for this kind of cash 
handed down by certain people is X amount of bear, X amount of fish, X amount of deer to make it and do it in such a way for certain spiritual reasons. The other side of the continuum for coming up with a story or an answer might be, well, gee, what's over there by the campfire right now? Well, there's a little bit of bear over here. Oh, there's a, there's word, a little bit of fish yeah, over here. Exactly. Yeah, And yeah. just put it together. And again, we'll never okay. know. Uh, right. It's romantic to think about all the different ways. Right, but, right. but to me, it means they had access at least to all of those animals. Yeah. I mean, deer yeah. doesn't surprise you, but right. bear requires certain challenges. And fish, we don't think of necessarily every group of indigenous people we know Nest, all, all consuming fish or not. Some do, some don't, some mm-hmm. have taboos. So interestingly, it seems like the people who maybe made this cache probably were catching and or consuming right. fish. And yeah. now whether or not the consumption or, or the use of fish was solely for this purpose right. and not for other things, right. you know, again, right. mm-hmm. yeah, you know, we have one tiny site found by circumstance and we're well, trying to recreate everything the out of it, though. Yeah. You can with yeah. the analysis. Now, which is if great. we found four or five more of those over the years nearby, yeah. and they all had the same percentage of animal fat. Right. And they all had this that we might then be able to say, oh, this seems to be a pattern. Right. You know, one one instance doesn't make a pattern. It makes a neat little story and a neat right. little collection. But. Yeah, and that's the importance of finding these other caches to to make to see those patterns and better understand that story. Mm-hmm. All right, people, so. go walk your dogs. Get yeah. out there. Yeah, right. yeah exactly. <laughs> all right, we're going to pivot a little bit. Um, because Scott, you've worked extensively with the National Park Service, and you have. Um, I don't know. It says here, Crystal, finishing your career. Um, I'm not sure that you're really at the end of your career, Scott. So we'll <laughs> just my, say. Maybe my park service. <laughs> yeah, you retired. Sort well, of, re- right. You finishing finished, up maybe there, your we'll park service that. career yeah. as the chief of cultural resources for Yosemite National Park. Um, it's fun for us to um, talk to you about that, uh, especially because we had interviewed um, Laurel Angel earlier right. on. And have you all met? I don't no, know. No, I've not met her yet. But Although you, I may have. Passed by her okay. when, when she was younger. but Right, because she's the one who grew yeah. up there. And right, her dad right. worked yeah. there. And yeah. so I and think we knew, talked that you yeah. knew yeah. maybe I worked, her I worked dad. with her dad. Yes, yeah, okay, that that's right. So um, we know you worked closely, um, you, you have worked closely with indigenous descendant communities during your time at Yosemite. And we were wondering if you could speak to the relationship of the National Park Service um, uh, to descendant communities and their um, ability, desire, outreach to work with descendant communities and how that relationship has has been in the past, how it has evolved, and how you might see it evolve in the future. Um, we, we were both drawn to the recent article in The Atlantic by David Truer um, entitled Return the National Park's to the tribes. And um, David Truer was making a, a very interesting case about how to think about these lands, how they became parks, and who might be good stewards of these lands. So we were wondering if you could if you could talk a little bit about your involvement with the national parks specifically and just in general about about these pretty important topics right now. Yeah. And that's a fascinating subject with almost like trying to study a small cache near Livingston, Montana. So we we have a lot of opinions and a lot of ideas, but no one thing that clearly points us in the right direction at the right time. But the, the National Park Service, which has been in, well, actually only in existence for a little more than uh, 100 years. It was created in ni- uh, 1916, but the first national park being Yellowstone, um, 
1872, so it would be about 150 years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, seems like a long time for our history and our understanding of, of land, natural and cultural uh, conservation and preservation, but just a blink of the eye when it comes to uh, the other people who who walk these lands and cache tools all over the place for uh, thousands and thousands of years, and a, and a real array of of cultural groups, tribes, ancestral groups, uh, and a lot of different um, uh, ecological landscapes uh, in the national parks. And um, it's interesting that the the park service came to the res- realization. In the 1950s, 1960s, that national parks were not just natural entities, uh, landscapes and and water and people. That it was a it was a real um, uh, intertwining of culture and and nature. And cultural resources has always played second fiddle by and large, unless the the really big archaeological parks like Mesa Verde. Um, Chaco Canyon, uh, Casa Grande, places like that that had maybe a team of archaeologists before they had a botanist, whereas mm-hmm. the big national parks like Yellowstone and things like that had wildlife specialists, botanists, uh, foresters before they ever had historians and archaeologists. So, right. And as as you all know from the, the understanding and the, the work that you do with extreme history is that you just can't separate one thing and look at it. You've got to look at the, the whole thing together, uh, which is why I like uh, cultural ecology to, to really see what the importance of. So that if you, if you find a cache and it has bear grease, well, then you've got to talk to a wildlife biologist or a fisheries yeah. biologist to figure out all these things yeah. together. And the... Um, National parks grew out of a time run by the military, which for our history had some real implications in the 1870s of what the military was doing in the West. Mm-hmm. And I would, I would say many, but I think all, all of the national parks that had um, Native American settlements and, and locales that were still active at the time, not just prehistoric abandoned sites, grew out of um, an engineered method to remove the people from the landscape and not unlike removing indigenous peoples to reservations because of the need to find minerals or the need to move a railroad through an area or to build a community or something like that. Uh, the National Park Service all by one entity um, did that in a very purposeful manner. In the 1950s, that realization, there was that rekindling or, or rekindling of the um, uh, understanding of how important uh, Native peoples were to the history and natural history uh, of our landscape. So probably in about the 1950s, 1960s, uh, there was an increased awareness. There were more museums de- dedicated to American um, uh, history and to Native history uh, in national parks, uh, understanding of art and culture and things like that. But it was, again, it was taught by or understood by and written by and taught by the Park Service. 
and occasionally bringing in a representative, maybe not from the same tribe, right. but and maybe not the same regalia, but to to show. And it was with an understanding that these are lost cultures, the mm, vanished cultures. They're vanished, and they and, right, um, right. Which and, of course they were not. So, right. Yeah. And in Truer's article, he starts out talking about Yosemite and the Mariposa Battalion yeah. of 1851, and. Um, the folks with whom I've been um, very graced to work with uh, for over 40 years now, um, w- one individual in particular, his great-grandmother traced uh, her birth in Yosemite Valley to, a, they don't know the exact year, but around the 1830s. So 20 years before the arrival of the Mariposa Battalion. As soon as they came, and the Indians dispersed through the area, uh, and a lot of interaction with other tribes and other groups, uh, there was almost a hidden culture going on. If, if a group of white people came, came forward and said, gee, are you, are you from this group that used to be in Yosemite? Many of them would say, no, no, I'm not, even though they were, because mm-hmm. they didn't, because they remembered that of, yeah. the last time somebody right. said that, they were killed. Right. So, um, when friends of mine in the 1970s went to the Smithsonian because they were in Washington to petition the federal government for uh, federal acknowledgement as an Indian tribe that had been lost, quote, vanished, they got to see an exhibit on the Miwok people in the Smithsonian that said the the tribe vanished in the, in the and he said, no, we haven't. I'm, I'm right here. You know? yeah, yeah. And they've been working. To this day, their petition has not been um, completed. And uh, they've been working on it. They haven't all, been recognized. Right, formally recognized, well. yeah. Mm. And uh, starting in 1982, we worked with them to um, get a small parcel of land in Yosemite Valley dedicated and under permit because we can't, without an act of Congress, we can't grant land back to a tribe or without a treaty or something. Okay. So, but we could permit the use of that uh, land in exclusive exclusivity f- to build a ceremonial roundhouse. So as opposed to the Park Service building a historically accurate roundhouse and talking to some people mm-hmm. from tribes and how did you use it and what were the songs you did and then have other people run these programs and occasionally have local Native people come in and participate. This is set up by them, for them, and then with the purpose of explaining to the public what they're So the public like. can come in and view these, um, view view the roundhouse and their ceremonies within. Yeah, but it's okay. all it's all under their it's their project. Right, right, yeah. right. And yeah. that that was a because there's another tribe involved called the federal government which is a chief and a lot of other folks and, <laughs> and, and taboos and their right. own language and right. kinship mm-hmm. and everything else. And things move, decisions move very slowly. So that's been over mm-hmm. 30 years and that process, is, the roundhouse is being constructed right now and hopefully right will be now. finished. Right wow. now, oh, that's okay. exciting. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's a big step forward yeah. towards just, I think, in people's mind. It, be, it creates a much, I mean, that's the other thing when you mentioned about Chaco Canyon and Mesa Verde. I mean, there was physical architecture, impressive physical architecture. So you had the archaeologists in this sense of this being a place where people inhabited, even if 
they weren't inhabited when people showed up mm-hmm. who were Euro-American. But, you know, Yosemite and um, Yellowstone didn't have so much obvious physical architecture. You know, there was camps and things. So I think that sense, I mean, so how phenomenal to be able to build a roundhouse. I think it just, in a lot of ways, changes the way people understand the landscape and who is using it just by seeing that bit of architecture. I mean, it, it's it's way too little too late, but perhaps it's a, the start of changing perceptions. Right. Yeah. And I think the difficulty lies in what kind of a Pandora's box is being opened by allowing something. It's, it's one of the few places. I mean, there are other parks that have allowed, either through treaty or other arrangements, certain uses. Um, but to actually permit a segment of land, in a sense, uh, as rented land within a national park, why don't we let other people do it? Or like hunting rights in a national park. Well, if we let local natives use that, then what are we going to tell the other people who have grown up here for nine generations but are not Native Americans? You know, things like that. And I think the Park Service is on that cusp of uh, facing some of these difficult issues and realizing that, oh, we don't don't want to open a can of worms. That's always just too easy to say. Mm-hmm. That no matter what you do in the National Park Service or the federal government or anything, any organization, you're if you're doing something right, you're going to be opening a can of worms. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if it's not over here, it's going to be over here. And um, so, you you know, you might as well address those things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think having uh, Deb Holland as uh, Secretary of Interior now mm-hmm. uh, helps out because she brings that kind of awareness to, to things that are important not only to certain groups of people that have been ignored for so long or actually been physically removed, but important to the other people who have learned life without seeing the can of worms. Right, right, right. Yeah, definitely. There's a potential for for many things to to sort of change. But yeah, you know, and Shane, we had Shane Doyle on the podcast a few months ago, and he was talking about kind of that same idea in Yellowstone, having an area in Yellowstone where um, where indigenous people who once lived on these lands could um, build structures. They could, you know kind of recreate that that lifestyle, but also so, show modern ceremony, modern powwow mm. situations. And so he talked about that on the podcast. I think he already he actually talked about that in an article that was written about Yellowstone as well. But it's kind of that same idea, you know. But I like going that step further and having the land belong to those right. people. And so I think that would that would be something that if, you know, Yosemite's doing it, maybe it could be modeled in other national parks as well. Or mm-hmm. it could be, it's modeled in, in Yosemite, but it could be done in other national parks as well. So that would yeah, be Yeah, and right. also in Yosemite, in addition to the specific small plot of land of a few acres to build a roundhouse, um, in Yosemite Valley, there are uh, other agreements with seven affiliated tribes, uh, which allow them various uses throughout the park Mm -hmm. uh, for ceremonial, traditional, uh, whatever. Uh, And and, uh, quite a few national parks have that, so that's Mm -hmm. a good step. And state parks, too. Yeah, state parks, too. Yeah, Yeah, right. 
Yeah, you know, and and David Truer in this article of goes of course goes a lot farther and says that that the state or that the national parks should be given back to the tribes mm-hmm. and to the land, um, the those tribe tribal nations that once owned that land, and you know there is models for that happening right now mm-hmm. as well in South Dakota with Bear Butte mm-hmm. that has been given back to the um, to the local indigenous people in that area. So there are things moving in that direction, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And and in other countries, New Zealand and Australia. Yeah, right. And also I was recently in 2019, I was in New Zealand with the um, Ngorogoro Conservation Area Authority, which is kind of an equivalent to our National Park Service. And going back into the 1950s, when Britain controlled Tanganyika, uh, and the need to preserve natural landscape and natural ecology and wildlife in the Serengeti was so important, they ran the Maasai off. Because they, mm. they're cattle herders, right? Pastoralists. Yeah, right. Yeah. Okay. right. So they, they, they oh. took hundreds of thousands, if not millions of acres away uh, from that, but set up immediately a place where the Maasai could live. And then that became the Ngorogoro Crater Natural Preserve Area. But then once the natural resources people saw, wow, there's some amazing wildlife ecology going on here and plant ecology and everything else. Um, so and, and there was a smaller number in 1950, there was a smaller number of Maasai living there. And, you know, and I think Truer's article says it would be great to take, give it back to the, the tribal groups and forget about all the conflicts and the politics. Well, mm-hmm. as we all know, human nature is human nature. And what's happened in Tanzania now, and with the creation of um, uh, Tanzania out of Tanganyika and Zanzibar and transferring to the British in 1961, they adopted that same rule in Ngorogoro Crater and the Conservation Area grew. Now there's... Um, something like six times the population on this same area of land, more research being mm-hmm. done about erosion, uh, wildlife habitat, um, all sorts of things. And certain political groups have, within the Maasai have mm-hmm. gained more power than other groups. Mm-hmm. And then certain things have happened. So now they're thinking about dividing up the area again and giving another, actually a little bit more land to the Maasai, but it has no water. Mm-hmm. So for pastoralists, you, you need the water. And then by dividing the big land up into quarters, what's that doing to wildlife migration routes yeah, and everything right, else? So right. it's like, yeah, there's a lot of good there's, examples yeah. out there to, to see what happens. I, I don't think there's an easy solution. I, mm-hmm. I'm truly, uh, I think in certain national parks or um, certain areas of national parks, um, to, to let the uh, local native people, but not, I'd hate to see politically astute, larger tribal groups in consortium running all the national parks as opposed mm-hmm. to making sure that the people who are indigenous to those areas are, mm-hmm. are the ones that are responsible for it. Yeah. Well, good. You know, I th- and I think what his article was great about is just kind of putting it out there. And right. it, it, as we celebrate Yellowstone's 150th anniversary next year, mm-hmm. you know, I think there will, will be more discussions about this right. and moving in that direction. So I think that's interesting. 
Yeah, and I didn't know that about um, Yosemite. I think that's fascinating. I mean, thinking about what Shane was saying about Yellowstone, where I think his idea was having a whole bunch of different teepees that were all painted in the styles of their different. And then, as you said, having ceremonies. I think that idea is that people would actually love to see that in Yellowstone. But I think, again, it would also remind people that this this was a, a, a place that always had certain tribes Mm -hmm. coming through and using it and this whole concept of of wilderness and Mm -hmm. these empty landscapes would little by little kind of fall away Mm -hmm. so that we can start making room for more possibilities like what's going on in Yosemite and I think we start with these ideas and then you see what happens but like you said there's a can of worms we all know there's going to be a can of worms but Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean we just keep doing what we did, which right. was wrong. Yeah. So no no easy answers there, but it is good for folks like David Truer to, to put it out there. Right. I'd exactly. recommend uh, one book. I, I jotted down here. I was going to bring a comment, but it's Dispossessing the Wilderness, Yeah. if you've seen that, by um, David Spencer back in 2000. And it really goes into detail in a lot of the um, the ideas. And I, th- I think that's what's important about extreme history is that um, – Truer writes that article, and it's in Atlantic when a lot of people read it. And that elevates the conversation mm-hmm. to the dinner table. But what extreme history does is takes it a little bit further because everybody assumes if you read it in the Atlantic, oh, gee, that's good. The article's over. I understand it now. Well, no. It is so complex, nobody really understands it yet. Yeah. Whereas thing, groups like um, extreme history, Native American groups, uh, all sorts of people have their own views that take it one step further to be able to start getting a sense of what the actual answers might be on those. Right, right. And and having conversations around it and and then changing policy, mm-hmm. you know, right. and, and educating the public about it. And that's, you know. And listening. You and, know, and it's, listening. The, it's the yeah. having the conversations, which means you're listening as much as you're as you're saying, people have to be brought up to date on the history that maybe they didn't get. I mean, so much of this history, I've only learned in the last 15 years of my life, you know, and, and then it overturns the way you think about things, but it it doesn't mean that all of a sudden then there's a clear answer, but it does mean that a lot of people I think have to understand the history in its, in its full complexity in order to really understand why moving forward in a different way that maybe they didn't consider it was possible. So I love that idea. And I think Mm -hmm. you're right. It's like, this is what public history should be doing. Right. You know, right. bringing these conversations out. Yeah, you know, and that's our whole mission at Extreme History is to talk about is educating about this history so we can better understand it and work with it today in our lives to, you know, have these conversations that we're having right now. And where do we go with this? Where do we, how do we move forward with this? And one thing that we didn't talk about, Scott, in your bio is that you are also a board member of Extreme History Project. Absolutely. You're not off the hook yet. (laughs) Yeah. You've You've been been there since the beginning. (laughs) You were one of our founding board members. Mm -hmm. You were the first of three, um, well, you know, three board members plus Marsha Fulton and myself. So there was there was five of us in the beginning, and right. you were one of the five. Yeah. And so, so I have a vested interest. You do, you right. do, and 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 you know, you help shape what we how we think about these things and how we've moved forward as extreme history for sure. And you know, kind of speaking to that public history aspect, you know, we we um, we like to delve into these kind of stories because they're very complex. And that's important to us to to understand complex stories and kind of widen out that that traditional narrative to bring in all these other narratives that have either been 
pushed under the rug or pushed out or, you know, not considered or lost in some form or fashion. So that's what we do at Extreme History. And our goal is to really uh, widen this history and, and understand those complexities so that we can understand our place in this world today. And so, you know, you've been involved in public history, Scott, since the beginning of your career, um, not only with the Park Service, but everything you've done with inner resources planning and in your other, you know, jobs that you've done through your whole career. So can you just talk a little bit about what you think public history is or what public archaeology is and how you've used it in your career and why you think it's so important to to for the public to be involved in history archaeology heritage yeah i think um sort of as a preface i think if you tell any kind of his historical story or idea or exhibit or tour or something like that it would be or even television show um that that deals with a fairly rational approach to to the historic story um it would be difficult to find people who are not interested and um and yet when it 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 becomes more and more difficult to find people to take the next step to apply those those things that we can learn it, it's almost like it's a casual thing okay i've learned my history then walk away from it but if if we know our history and we learn our history and we continue to relearn it because how many of us have come to realize just in the last 2 to 5 years that the history we learned was not all that accurate mm-hmm. right. for certain populations. I think people are just people. learning about the Tulsa massacre yeah, now, right? right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and so it makes one wonder how many other things are out there. I think Tulsa was not in isolation. Um, the things that happened in the Cold War were not in isolation. Things that happened in the 1870s weren't just in isolation. And not that everyone in the population needs to take the time and the effort and the energy and the heartache to become a PhD in history or archaeology. God, um, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, but to realize that, it's, that there is one more step, mm-hmm. and, and that's why I think the importance of public history and involved public history, um, so that it's not just somebody who knows something telling people who don't know it, it's involving them so that they start asking the questions mm-hmm. so that a recipient of Extreme Histories programs, Robin, can mm-hmm. go out and go, wait, something is really different. I, I wouldn't have noticed it two years ago, but now I know something different. And uh, an archaeological site is preserved because of that. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't mean that she learned to preserve the entire site and do all the work, but there aren't enough archaeologists and historians in the world to pull all this stuff together. So having the public know what it is they need, learn to look, learn to ask questions, and learn to be analytical, and which is really important with, with kids and mm-hmm. development of 
critical thinking in schools today so that to be involved in to be involved in those things so that ask those questions they will come along and say you know because this whole concept that we were talking about of of giving the national parks to the um to uh, native populations and tribes well that's just the way I said it is such a, a loaded. It's like defund statement. the police. It just right, it, right. it makes people um, completely nervous yeah. and, and freak out. But it's out. such a loaded concept, mm-hmm. a creative concept, worthy of thought. It's no different than in uh, eighteen fifty when Yosemite actually became the first national park. Uh-huh. When Abraham Lincoln it, no, first state park. Uh, yeah, State, State Preserve for, for national reasons, but anyway, well, that's a whole whole other topic. That's, that's another the, podcast. The, that's the way I learned it. <laughs> what a great, innovative, creative process right. to right. create something that no one had ever thought about, and it became the national park system, which then became modeled all around the world, including Tanzania today. Mm. So why then? with a good cadre of thinking people out there in the public that in 10 years from now we could say, gosh, this might be really creative and I don't know how we're going to do it, but let's put this land where it belongs as a national park and give it back to the native peoples. So that's no different than what the first concept of creating a national park. Okay, I love thinking about that because when you think about when Yellowstone was created 1872 they they you know they passed legislation but they didn't pass any money to fund it right right so you had people oh like oh cool i don't even have to homestead this i can just come in here i can set up shop i can take tourists through i can hunt and literally there it was a free-for-all because it was just like because the concept was so new and like you said it wasn't until 19 16 that they yeah. actually funded the organic act which funded the park well service. in 1916 i think it was five thousand dollars yeah oh so my yeah. Gosh. Wow. they funded so it but they it. didn't fund it yeah, so yeah but they right, had to send in the military right, they didn't right. know what they were doing right. and and like you said it, it was a creative idea but it, it certainly was a stinker to begin with in yeah. terms of what it actually looked like right. be careful what you wish for right yeah. exactly, exactly. Right. so i think that's a really good point is to is to look at truer's article um in that light i was also going to say there's there's like the history of the past and the history of the future. Mm-hmm. And I would say the history of the past, it's like we are learning a lot of what we learned was either inaccurate or very incomplete. And it was done as a, a kind of a download, someone telling you. Mm-hmm. And sort of I think the way we envision the history of the future, all of us here at Extreme History, is that it's engaged, it's public, but also it, it's to look for all those other untold voices and other threads and then think about how they're going to affect the way we make decisions right. today. So I, I, when people cling on to, but that's not the history I learned and they don't want to hear and they, or they call something revisionist history, I don't think we can think of it as that dichotomy. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's really, there was a way history used to be done and there's a way history is being done now and should always be done in the future, I think. And we're trying to do that in a much more engaged, accessible way. Um, and hopefully that would get us past some of these really loggerhead mm-hmm. disagreements. Mm-hmm. I don't know. We can't solve it all in this podcast. No. That's all I know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. So so where are we at? Do we need to ask Scott about William Clark um, marching back through 
Bozeman on his way out, um, heading back from the Pacific um, <laughs> towards the Missouri. Should yeah, we let's ask, ask him? Let's because ask Scott about he that. did such yeah, a phenomenal I job. I think you're probably the person who most closely tried to ground truth where William Clark would have come back across through this area, right through parts of Bozeman and had to get over the range back to Livingston and then back along the Yellowstone Mm -hmm. before he met back up with, um, who's the other guy again? Oh, yeah. Mary Winther Lewis? <laughs> Lewis. There we go. So, you mean that guy? Yeah. That guy. Yeah. So, so tell us a little bit about why you had to do that project and then, and then what you found. Because this is, this is a pretty fascinating one just for people in the area. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Uh, and it, it has an interesting, again, by coincidence, because I was here and my office was here and I knew a little bit about the area, um, we were contracted by a a developer uh, between here and Livingston. Um, They had to get a federal permit for their development for uh, wetlands, for crossing with culverts or bridges on on wetlands. And because that's a federal permit that requires an archaeological and historical survey of the area to see if there are any uh, important historic sites or information that might be irretrievably lost uh, due to the development. And and that's most of the work that, that we have done in the past. And um, and sometimes the that work is very tedious and boring. It's a lot like fishing. You can they call it fishing but they don't call it catching. You know, right, you go right. out and you fish. <laughs> so in archaeology you go you out catch, and you, you look a lot but you, you survey. Yeah. yeah, you don't <laughs> you always, don't find necessarily right. or record. Or you finding. might find a few <laughs> small fragments of obsidian or a little bit of mm. um, pottery or something like that but not those truly remarkable things. So when you get an opportunity that you know you're in the neighborhood of um, uh, Clark returning um, in July um, and um, and how that whole story evolved that just by circumstance of being in the right place and again and, and, and we've talked about this in the past is there's something uh, very deep within our mm. beings mm-hmm. of it's not enough to have a connection with an artifact and, and how many artifacts do we not get to touch mm-hmm. because they're in a museum they're behind a case but there's a need to touch things that someone else has made or touched before. Or, or stand where someone stood. Yeah, or, absolutely. Or, yeah. you know, look and know that you're looking at something that someone looked at, you know, 100 yeah. years ago or, or 10,000 years right. ago. All yeah. the photographs of a National Park entrance sign versus the number of photographs taken of certain places in National right. Parks. Right. That know it. They'll always take the other pictures, but they do not leave a park without taking the, the photograph of that first one. So why are, are those things? And um, I remember uh, a discussion years ago in um, San Francisco about trying to retrace the route of Drake up up the, the coast and trying to find the original white caps that he his oh, ship man. cut through as wow. if that water would still, still be there. Yeah, yeah. And that's very symbolic of <laughs> history that... You know, even if we could find the footprints of Clark, what more would we already know that he came this way? And we started to narrow it down a little bit more, and and where he camped. And but basically, basically in a nutshell, um, and I think it, it's probably the um, the unforgotten list of the important women of the mm-hmm. Lewis and Clark expedition, right. which 
you know, there was one. Right. And because um, Sakakawea knew the landscape, had been kidnapped as a child, taken over hundreds and hundreds of miles to be with a different group of people, always remembering where she'd been because she knew she wanted to get back at some point. Mm -hmm. And then she comes through with these couple of yahoos from St. Louis and further east. And and, um, as as they came through on the way west, they came through um, Three Forks, what is today Three Forks, where the Missouri and Galton and Jefferson come together, all named by these great white guys. I'm sure she knew it as something else. Yeah, Yeah. she she looked... um, over the hill and said, you know, you were asking about that, that river, the Roshon, the Yellowstone River, and mm-hmm. where it joins back up with the Missouri, way back at a place that we now know as the boundary with North Dakota. She says, you know, if you go that way, you're going to make it right to that point. And so Clark was very, very interested and went on the return route when Lewis was trying to find a different routes around the Marais Pass area and, and different ways in that area. Clark brought a smaller group of people and Sakakawea down mm-hmm. this way, and and she had pointed out um, the actual notch in the in the hillside uh, where to go. Yeah. And then part of that retelling of history and what's the purpose of history, um, you know, there. And I'm not sure if it's still there, but by um, um, the park up here, yeah, Lindley Park, Lindley Park. Oh, yes, there's a yeah. plaque where it says they, that. Yeah, they camped there. Well, I, I traced down some documentation in the Chamber of Commerce in the 1930s. Okay, since no one really knows, then we'll make it uh, the camp spot here because that would make more people want to come to Lindley Park. And it's kind of like, um, you know, George Washington and I had a historian friend back east who uh, did a fictitious but actually became a, a really interesting paper. Uh, he calculated the age of George Washington based on the number of nights he slept in different places. <laughs> and he, he would have to be... I think I'd heard about I, this. Either he moved every five minutes George every Washington night. Slept here. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, or he oh, was 340 great. years mm-hmm. old. Because oh, that's he, funny. And, and so why do, why do we want... So it's another thing to want to sense history, but there are certain altruistic and sometimes economic yeah. goals exactly. to, to having history. There are. And I think even the developers wanted to know that there was a campsite on their land, not to prevent their development, but so that they could call it Clark Acres or something yeah, like that. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. They could claim yeah. that piece yeah. of history for themselves. Right, right. right. Yeah. exactly. So when I ride my bike up Kelly Canyon now, there's that. There's another sign that talks about yeah. where Clark camps. Right. That, that's, and that's closer to where sort of the Fort Ellis sort of part of the East Gallatin is. Yeah, right? and that's very close. We were able, because... Uh, both Lewis and Clark, uh, but Clark especially, was very astute at taking brief but important reflective notes of certain things. And, of course, he blazed a cottonwood tree going up Kelly Canyon. Yeah. It would have been amazing if that was Yeah, still but, you yeah. know, good old yeah. cottonwoods. Yeah, right. Is that going to laugh? <laughs> right. And if it fell just the right way, you'd never see the blaze anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, but... You know, he would he would say that they would go a roughly straight line for 1.5 miles or three miles mm-hmm. or six miles at a certain compass direction, and then change, and go another distance at another compass direction. So, and then we knew when he got to the Yellowstone River, and we knew when he left Three Forks. So you could kind of say, well, he couldn't. 
he couldn't, as some people thought, that Sakakoya had taken him over Sack Peak. Mm. Well, hmm. yeah. yeah You've never heard that story before? No. Yeah, like Ross Pass. and Right, okay, yeah. right. Okay. If you could get to the Yellowstone by going this route, wouldn't you rather go yeah. that way then? Oh, but yes. If, yes. if, in fact, you went through <laughs> Ross Pass over the Bridgers, down Bridger Canyon, around, you couldn't have gotten... With all these little segments that he measured, it wouldn't have worked it that have way worked. from yeah. what right. was in his notes. Right. Okay, so right. you knew that was yeah. no. Okay, right. mm. so you can kind of piece together, and probably within where that plywood sign is is probably within um, uh, a quarter mile of where nice. they were. Now, were they on hmm. one side of the river versus the other? Doesn't matter. I'm like I'm seeing the same view pretty much. Yeah, that they yeah. Saw. you know and that's what's fun yeah. to, right. to yeah. know yeah. for and me. That's neat. Yeah. You know, yeah. some people do want to have it exactly, but I'm like you, Nancy. I'm like you know, we're in the general area. That's really interesting. It's fascinating that they went through here. They saw the same mountain range as I'm seeing it pretty much today. So I think that's yeah. neat. You know, just a little bit about Sakakawea too. My friend Marcia Smallo is. Whenever Sakakawea's name always, whenever it comes up, she always says, "You know, we always think of her as this woman, you know, this very womanly woman." And and she was a child; she was basically a child. So mm-hmm. I just wanted to get that in there yeah, too. Right. I mean, she was not a woman; she was a she was young. She was, young. She was a preteen, you know, when this was happening. Yeah. So uh, all the more kudos to her for for all her knowledge she had at mm-hmm. that young age. Yeah, yeah, yeah. amazing. And she was taken a long way. Only when I started really studying about the Mandan and the Hadatsa, when I was looking at um, uh, the Hagen site, and then understanding the Shoshone where that where she came from, that it, it was supposedly a Hadatsa band that had come all the way that way, and mm-hmm. then taken her all the way back. Mm-hmm. That is a long way to travel yeah. and get taken from your family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because that's where she was found then, ultimately, in those villages. But, wow. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, so that's another podcast, yeah. for sure. another one. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Scott, do you have any last thoughts or comments, anything you wanted to talk about that we didn't get to today? Uh, I'm sure two or three hours from now I will think <laughs> yes, of one. Yes. But uh, <laughs> no, it's been a great opportunity to, you know, kick around ideas and, and tell a lot of old stories, but in a different way that, you know, makes me actually, I'm not just the teller of the stories. I'm actually thinking about, wow, what does that really mean now? That, mm. You know, all those things. But I really appreciate what uh, you guys thought up uh, how many years ago when you conceived of extreme history and what an extreme thought that was to push the bubble and open the new can of worms and uh, right. move ahead with that because I think it's very beneficial. Yeah, and we've been opening cans of worms ever since. Yeah. And we'll right. continue to do right. so. <laughs> we need to get some of those in the gift shop. I know, we do. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Scott, and and thank you so much for being here today. It's yeah. great to have you back in, in our neck of the woods again. You've been I in California. we'd never get you back from Yosemite. I know, so that's good. <laughs> So thank you, Scott, and thanks to all our listeners out there for joining us today. If you love this podcast, please share it with a friend and make sure to subscribe so it shows up for you each week on your podcast app. We also have a Facebook page called The Dirt on the Past, so make sure to find that and like it. We put links to all our podcast episodes in that Facebook page, but we also include links to articles, books, whatever we discuss on the podcast. So thanks again, Scott, and thanks to all of you listening. And we hope you can join us again to find out more about the the dirt dirt on on the past. past. 
A big thank you to our editor and sound guru, Steve Durbin, our social media maven, Maggie Mulcahy, and original music by Lawson Alegria. If you're enjoying The Dirt on the Past, make sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Also, please tell your friends and leave us a review. really helps people find us. We're a new podcast, and we're trying to grow our listener base, so please share. Thanks, and thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Dirt on the Past, a podcast of the Extreme History Project and Gallatin Valley Community Radio, KGVM. To hear more episodes, visit our website at theextremehistoryproject.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep searching out The Dirt on the Past. <laughs>